All right, if you got your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 3. Now, my original goal was to do all of chapter 3 tonight and knock out these last three churches, letters to these last three churches. But as I started studying, as I got through the first two letters, uh, I was already at about five pages so, of notes. So I figure we're not going to squeeze another one in there. We'll try to squeeze these two in tonight. I've got 45 minutes till 7, so we'll see. If I get long-winded, y'all just get up and walk out. I know I get it from someone. All right. All right. So Jesus is giving these letters through the apostle or through uh, the disciple John. Uh, John is to send these letters out. And so we have looked at the letters to Ephesus and Smyrna and uh, Pergamum and Thyatira. Tonight we're going to look at Sardis and Philadelphia. Those two letters. Now, Sardis and Smyrna that we have looked at are two letters that are kind of different from the others. Uh, We've talked about how the others, there's the introduction of Jesus. Um, There is uh, usually a statement of commendation. Hey, here's what you've been doing well. Uh, Then there is some kind of um, chastisement, some kind of area where they need to improve, some area where they have not been doing what they were supposed to be doing. And and Jesus is calling them out uh, to repentance. Philadelphia and Smyrna, I think I said Sardis, I meant Philadelphia and Smyrna are different because he does not start with any kind of, uh, or it doesn't contain any kind of chastisement. There's no kind of uh, condemnation or here's an area where you need to improve. And so when we look at these two letters, when we hit Philadelphia in a second, we're going to see a lot in common with the letter to Smyrna, even in kind of the way that it's written out. Uh, But let's start with Sardis. So let's look at the city, because this is what we've been doing. We've been looking kind of historically at these cities that they've been written to, and then we'll look at his letter. Now, remember this was written in early ADs, around AD 70 to 90. Uh, But back in the 6th century BC, Sardis was one of the most powerful cities in the ancient world. But by the time this letter is written, by the time of this Roman period in history... It's really not nearly as impressive as it used to be. It had been battles fought, it had been destroyed, uh, it had been rebuilt to an extent, uh, but it was not nearly as great as it once was. In fact, um, many historians or people that I had read while studying this said that it was a city that lived off of its ancient prestige more than its present condition. So it kind of looked at, hey, well, this is who we used to be. This is how great we used to be. This is how awesome we used to be. Now, right now, we're not that great, but they just kind of had a sense of pride looking back on who they used to be as a city. It was once a very wealthy city. Uh, It's where uh, gold and silver coins were first uh, made uh, in this time period. Uh, They claimed to have been the first to discover the art of dyeing wool. On three sides of the city, they had these perpendicular, these kind of almost straight up and down rock walls, except for the south side, that were uh, considered to be impenetrable, that you could not get to the city through here. So they kind of had these natural defenses, and then they had built their own wall on the south side. 
But twice, twice the city had been invaded. Twice the city had been overrun and overtaken. Uh, Once in 546 B.C., another time in 216 B.C., uh, because in their, in their arrogance, they had kind of uh, missed out and not caught or kept watch over people trying to invade. In fact, the second time, it was invaded by, there was a group of 15 men who found a, uh, a chink in their armor and were able to sneak in and open the gates for the rest of an army to come through. So this, this city that had uh, prided itself on its ability to protect itself fell twice, once to 15 men. Um, they worshipped Artemis and a local deity named Cybel, uh, who was believed to possess the power of bringing the dead to life. So just like the other cities that we've looked at, um, they have uh, pagan idolatry. That is their worship center. All right, so let's look at verses 1 through 6 of Revelation chapter 3. We'll read it, we'll pray, and then we'll kind of look at, we'll see what we can learn from this passage. It says, unto the church, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write... The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not spoiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. Thank you for this time to study your word. God, I pray that as we walk through your word tonight, that you would, um, God, that you would allow us to look at these churches and God see their their pluses and their minus, their 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 positives and their and their negatives. Um, and Father God, examine our own lives uh, next to them, God, to see if there's anything that we need to look at in our life, God, any, um, any sins that we need to confess, anything that we might need to uh, mature in. And so God, I just pray for your wisdom. I pray for your direction, God. I pray that you would speak. I pray that you be glorified and that we would encounter you in your truth. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right. So the first thing we see is the introduction to Jesus. Now he says, unto the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So up to right now, we've seen him referring back. So he refers to Jesus, or as Jesus is introduced, we see this kind of reference back to that vision that John had of Jesus back in chapter 1. And actually, this is the last church that Jesus has introdu- introduced in this way. The other ways Jesus is introduced come from other, uh, other areas or, or other um, ideas, but not necessarily back to that picture of Christ that they had seen or that John had seen. And so he says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. 
Remember the seven spirits of God? We said that that is the Holy Spirit. Seven uh, being the number of perfection in Scripture or wholeness or complete. A lot of times we see the number seven applied there uh, biblically and scripturally. Um, and so that we said that represents the perfection or the wholeness, the completeness of the Holy Spirit uh, at work in the church and at work in believers. Uh, the seven stars, those are the, uh, the seven angels of the churches, which we said uh, was that, that representation of the church before God and how Jesus walked along those lampstands and uh, those angels were, those, or were the, um, those representations of the Spirit. And so um, he writes to this church reminding them that it is Jesus that holds the seven spirits or the seven uh, 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 stars. It is Jesus who is in control of this church as he is in control of every church. And here's why he's writing this. As we read, I'm not sure if you noticed or not, but he did not start with words of encouragement uh, as he has done previously. It wasn't, hey, here's what you're doing good, now let me tell you what you need to work on. It was just straight into, look, I know your deeds, people think that you're alive, or you have the reputation to be alive, but really you're dead. There was no, hey, let me encourage you. It was just straight out, straightforward, hey, this is why you're messing up, and you're messing up really, really big. And so he did not come encouraging them. And so he came to really kind of call them out on their sin. So his introduction is Jesus is the one who holds the stars and holds the Spirit, is the one or is to remind them that Jesus is in control. Jesus has the authority. Jesus has the power. Jesus has the position to be able to confront you in your sin and in the areas where you have fallen. So he starts off. He says, I know your works. That you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, this is a pretty serious charge against the church of Sardis. If not the the, the second, maybe it's even the, the, the strongest. We saw previously where Jesus uh, told the church in Ephesus that um, they did good in the fact that they loved truth, they loved God, they loved God's word, but they had um, they stood for truth, but they had uh, lost their first love. They have not loved people inside and outside the church well, and and he said that he was going to come and take their lampstand away from them. Well, here he says, "Look, I know your works, I know your actions. There's nothing positive," and he jumps straight into it, and he says, "You have a reputation for being alive." But really, you are dead. This is a bold statement made to a church. This is him saying to that church, look, maybe you have the actions of being alive. Maybe you have a a good Sunday school. Maybe people come to your building. But there's no life in your church. Or maybe it's, hey, you live in this, in this culture that is, that is blatantly sinful. And maybe you've embraced the culture around you so much that, that the culture loves you. They think highly of you. But spiritually, you are dead. This is really a, a, a bold but also incredibly sad statement about this church because, because think of the transition that happens for us at salvation. Romans talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we've been brought to life in Christ. We've been given life. We've gone from death into life. Yet now, as Jesus, through John, sends out this letter to this church, he says, You are dead. You are living in a way that you have 
kind of forsaken everything that has happened in your life and you were living as though you did not know Jesus anymore. Now understand, this is not a rejection of their salvation. This is not a rejection saying, look, you're losing something. This is a statement saying, look, you have been saved. You have been changed. But understand how you are living. You're living in a way that though you might look good internally, you show no signs of life. Internally, when it comes to your relationship with God, it is at best in a coma. And this is a a sad, sad statement that those who had once gone from death to life are now living as though, living as though practically that they are spiritually dead. It's reminiscent of the the fig tree in Mark chapter 11 that Jesus looks at that that is full of leaves and has the appearance that it should have fruit, but it has none and Jesus curses it. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul, as he writes to Timothy, he's talking, kind of warning Timothy about certain people not to interact with. And he gives this statement in verse 5. He says that they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Now, I want to read the verses before that because I want you to see kind of, because I think this kind of ties in and kind of gives us an understanding of how they are spiritually comatose or dead in this In Revelation chapter 3. So 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 says this. But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Then he says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. So what Timothy, or what Paul is talking about is Timothy is people who, on the outside, they kind of know how to wear that mask, to look kind of churchy, to kind of present what they want people to see. But when you look at the core of who they are, they, they, they live as though they are lost. And with Paul, he's talking about, I believe, uh, lost people. They have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. But I believe that this is the exact same thing that Jesus is talking about to this church. Look, you might know how to kind of carry that religious facade so that you look a certain way. But internally, internally you are far, far, far from God. So this is the, uh, the, the, the negative spot that this church is at. That the majority of them have embraced this lifestyle. Much like in 2 Timothy, the ungrateful, lovers of money, lovers of self, disobedient to parents, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. They've kind of embraced this cultural lifestyle around them in such an extent that though they might still be able to kind of look the religious part, when it comes to the part that nobody sees, when it comes to the parts that that society and culture accepts, they've become so... um, callous to God's Word. They've embraced the world and sinfulness so much that spiritually they are far, far from God. And so he gives them a call. Not only does he just, he doesn't just point out their sins, but he gives them a call to repentance. Verses 3 and 4. Or I'm sorry, 2 and 3. It says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. 
If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Now that word wake up, or those words wake up, could probably be better translated into be watchful. And remember, when we look at the city and we look at the history of the city, this is a city that was supposed to be impenetrable. impenetrable. Uh, This was a city that was supposed to be so well protected that they didn't have to worry about any outside threats. Yeah, because they did not watch out, because maybe they got selfish or maybe they got lazy, maybe they got arrogant or prideful. At least two times in their history, there are two times in their history, they had been invaded and taken over by someone else. Even a small group of 15 people led to an invasion because they did not keep watch. Because they did not keep watch over what was on the outside, they ended up being taken over. They ended up falling. So as he says, wake up, or he says, be watchful, it's a reminder to them as they look at their city, a reminder to them of their faith that you have to wake up. You have to be watchful on what is going on in your life. Look at your life. See what has invaded. See the sin that has invaded. See the things that have made it where Jesus would say that you are spiritually dead or that you are once again living as though that you are lost. And then he says, strengthen what remains. He says, um, Strengthen what remains and what is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The idea of uh, what is not, or, or he has not found the works complete, it's kind of like the idea of a, um, you're building a house, or you're building a building, and maybe you start off, maybe you kind of get the foundation laid, and maybe you get one or two walls up, and then you stop, and maybe you do something else or whatever, but that, that house, that building, it is left incomplete. This church, they've started. There's that foundation. There, there is a faith there. There's no declaration here that these people are not Christians, that this is a church that is full of unbelievers. This is written to a church that, that is assumed that these are Christians. There are those works that have been begun. They, uh, they've been started. There, there is that foundation. There is that faith. Maybe they started to do the things that they were supposed to do, but somewhere along the line, they stopped. They quit doing what they were supposed to be doing. They quit being who they were supposed to be, and He calls them to repent, and He calls them to start doing what you're supposed to do. In fact, He literally says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and what is about to die. What you haven't been doing, start doing again. Verse 3 says, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So how do you strengthen what remains? Remember then what you've received, keep it and repent. What did they receive? They received the gospel. They received the message of Jesus Christ. They had received life. They had received life out of death. They received light out of darkness. They have been changed, adopted into God's family. The same as every other Christian. And Paul, or, or excuse me, Jesus reminds them, remember your salvation. Remember the gospel. Remember what has happened in your life. Reset your focus. Reset your eyes. Reset your mind. Reset your heart on what is most important. Remember it. Keep it. Embrace it. Don't throw it away. Don't let it go. Don't embrace other ideologies and consider them equal. Keep it. Hold on to it and repent. Repent of your sin and do what you're supposed to do so that there might be life come again and you're not living as though you are dead. 
Then he gives a warning. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You know, we talk, a lot of times we think or even we pray that God would, uh, would meet with us or that the Holy Spirit would, would lead us and guide us and would be with us and strengthen us. And the, the idea, the thought of God being with us can be a very comforting thought. But with this church and with these people, that is not a comforting uh, image that Jesus is presenting. He says, I'm going to come against you like a thief in the night, and you're not going to know what hour I will come. This is not a message of encouragement. This is not a message saying, hey, I'm going to come and be with you, and it's going to be great. This is a message saying, if you do not repent, I am coming against you. I'm coming against you, and I will bring you to the place through discipline where you will repent. Where you will turn, if you will not repent, if you will not turn, then we know through all of Scripture that, that God has this, this uh, the church is supposed to be doing church discipline. Uh, God sends the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. And we've seen in Corinthians where if someone does not repent of their sin, God says that He'll hand them over to, the, uh, uh, to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, to, to death, that it is better that they die on earth and go ahead and go to heaven than to live a life of just uh, unabashed sinfulness and bring um, negativity to the church and to God's name. And so when Jesus says this, I'm going to come against you, this is not a, a pretty picture of Jesus coming and walking with us in the sand. This is a picture of Jesus saying, look, I'm going to come and it's not going to be fun, but I want you to repent. I want you turn to turn. But if you do not know that I'm coming and it's not going to be a pleasant visit. And then we get the promise or the encouragement for those who do uh, endure. Verse 4, he says, Yet you still have some, or you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So he says the majority of your church have, have embraced this ideology, this sinfulness. Um, they look great, but they're, they're spiritually dead. There's a handful of people who have not done this. There's a handful of people uh, who are doing what they're supposed to do. They don't just look good on the outside, but they're striving to walk with God. Verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, remember, each letter has ended this way. To him who conquers. So to him who conquers, it's not just referring to, to the few that are doing well. This is referring to the whole church. So to those who repent, those who start doing what they are supposed to do, those who turn and walk with God, those who conquer, those who persevere uh, tribulation, those who persevere uh, through persecution. There is this promise of of purity, of, of wholeness, of being made complete in Christ. There's this, this promise of eternal life. Now, as you read that, he gives them a, a promise where he says in verse 5, about halfway through, he says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So there are some who have taken that say, well, because he said that, that means that um, if they don't do what is right, that he's going to blot their name out. 
Well, that's not what's going on here. Now, this ideology or this idea of the the book of life or the book with the names written in it, um, we see it back in Exodus, but also during this time, um, it was considered almost like a a ledger. Towns or cities would have it, uh, letters or or ledgers for citizenship. And so if you were a citizen of a certain area or you were a citizen of a certain country, uh, you you, you would have your name written down in these ledgers. And so for people who broke the law, people who did something uh, bad enough, their, their name would be blotted out and they would lose their citizenship. Now, what I believe is going on here, because there is no, hey, if you do good, I'm not going to, but if you don't, then I will blot. We don't see that in this passage. All we says is he says, I will not blot your name out. Remember, this is to this whole church, not just to the few who have done well. This is to the whole church. I believe this is a promise to the whole church that, look, you have fallen, you've messed up, you need to repent. If you don't understand, I'm coming. It's not going to be a pleasant visit, but understand, I'm calling you to repentance. I'm calling you to change. And I want you to understand that that don't think you're too far gone, that you've somehow lost your salvation, that you somehow, that God has given up on you. The promise here is that God is faithful. Yes, there's the promise of citizenship. There's the promise of, of being together. There's that promise of eternity with God. But it's also a promise of faithfulness from God to them. That even though you've messed up, even though you've fallen away, even though you look good on the outside, but inside you are far from me. Understand, I've made a promise and that promise stands that I will not blot your name out of the book of life. And so the challenge for us here is to examine our hearts, to examine our lives and to to make sure that we are more than just a, a pretty religious picture. To make sure that we are doing more than just looking the part. To make sure that that our lives and our hearts are, are desiring to honor God, to follow Him, to love Him, to serve Him. That we're doing more than just, hey, everyone thinks that I look good and that's all that matters. Because with this church, they look good. They were respected. But internally, when it came to their relationship with God, there was no life. Are we doing the things that that we need to do so that there is life in our relationship with God? Are we confessing our sins? Are we spending time in prayer? Are we spending time in God's Word? Or are we trying to chase after and embrace sin while at the same time making sure that we kind of keep our mask on, keep the facade up so that people will will think that we're, we're one way, but in reality we're doing everything else that we want to. Sinful, it doesn't matter. And we try to live this this duality of life. This church tried that and Jesus brought a pretty heavy message on to them. And so the encouragement for us is to remember God's faithfulness to us and then us in turn uh, to strive to live faithful to God. To not let uh, sin and temptation and the world kind of create this duality in our life, but to live uh, focused and wholeheartedly uh, for God. So that's the church to Sardis, or the church in Sardis. Here's the letter to the church in Philadelphia. We'll move to verses 7 through 13. The church of Phil, or the city of Philadelphia. It was located at the juncture of trade routes. 
So that made it a very uh, um, busy city. Uh, so as people are moving from uh, these trade route routes from one city to another city to carry their stuff, to, to sell their stuff, um, Philadelphia is a city kind of right in the middle of some of these routes. In fact, there was a, um, let me make sure I get the, the names right, uh, there's an imperial post route from Rome that passed through Philadelphia that earned its title the Gateway to the East. So if you left Rome and you were heading out east to, uh, to sell stuff or to travel to or you're going to another country, you passed through Philadelphia. This was a large city. This was a wealthy city, very prosperous city. Uh, it was very important commercially. Um, it had... Um, some, some plains out that had volcanic ash from the city that was good for growing uh, grapes. So uh, from, from several ways, agriculturally, commercially, trade, this was a very important and very wealthy <clears throat> city. It was considered a, a missionary city. As it was the gateway to the east, it was considered a missionary city as that it was going to be used to bring Greek culture to the recently annexed areas of Lydia and Phrygia. So it was, it was considered a, a, a way to take Roman culture and spread it out to parts of the world that they had already conquered. And it was also called Little Athens uh, because of its many temples and religious festivals. So just like every other major city in this area and in this time that we have looked at. This is a city that is built on uh, pagan worship. Remember uh, last week as we looked at the city of, I believe it was Pergamum, we talked about how... uh, I'm sorry, it might have been Thyatira. It had all of these trade guilds there. We talked about how all those trade guilds kind of had all of their own personal deities that they would worship or that they would pray to to find favor in their, in their selling or in their crop building or in their crop building, their crop raising or in their livestock raising or whatever they were doing. <clears throat> We talked about how that all revolved around uh, the worship of these false gods, the worship of these false deities. Well, as they traveled, as they went to these other areas, that went with them. And so a city that was major like Philadelphia, a city that was a a bustling area of commerce would have had all of this idolatry drenched in with it. So here's the letter that Jesus sends to this church in the city of Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and, will, and, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have... Um, excuse me. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan uh, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown." The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out from it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new city, Jerusalem, or the the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so this is where he starts off, and he doesn't use a reference back to that um, uh, description of Christ. He uses a new way to describe Christ. He says, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. So what does that mean, this, this key of David? What is this in reference to? The key of David was in reference to, it was given to the one who was in charge of the royal household and who had authority over all of the household. Listen to this in in Isaiah chapter 22. This is um, uh, God speaking to the prophet Isaiah to uh, the uh, king of Israel at this time. He says this, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So the... The key of David was given to the one who was head over the royal household, and they had absolute charge. They were absolute in control. Decisions they made were decided. What they opened, no one could shut. What they shut, no one could open, means that they were in control. Their word went. There was no questioning. There was no ifs, ands, or buts. If they said it, that's what happened. So as he's talking about Jesus, and he's the one who holds this key, and what he opens, no one will shut, and what he shuts, no one will open. Jesus is the authority. Jesus Jesus is the one who, um, I believe what he's talking about here specifically is to the kingdom of God, Jesus is the one who opens that door. In fact, Jesus is that door for us to get into the kingdom of God. We come to God's kingdom, we enter into God's uh, country, we become citizens of God's kingdom through Jesus Christ. And so just like in Sardis, we saw uh, Jesus who is authoritative, Jesus who is in charge, Jesus who is in control over the church, this time we see not just the church but Jesus is authoritative and Jesus is in control and Jesus is sovereign even over the kingdom of God. That if we enter to the kingdom of God it is through Jesus that we enter. Now that's important as we get into this because as we, as we saw when we read it, <clears throat> he mentions that, that these uh, believers are dealing with these Jews that, that, that he referenced to before as, as fake Jews. They say they're true Jews, but they're really not. He calls them the synagogue of Satan. So it's, it's a reminder that as he deals with these false teachers who deny the... Um, who deny the Messiahship of Jesus. They deny Jesus' power. They deny Jesus' sacrifice. It's a reminder that Jesus is the one who gives us life. Not following the rules, not obeying the law, not being a Jew first and then a Christian, uh, but it is Jesus that opens that door that brings us into God's family. So verses 8 through 11, we see their encouragement. It says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that you are Jews, or say that, excuse me, that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, 
The door that he has set before them in verse 8. Well, really, it's interesting to look at verse 8 and then look back in verse 1. To the church of Sardis, he says, I know your works. And then he goes on and talks about the reputation and talks about who they really are. He says, here I says, I know your works. And he comes out to encourage them. He comes out to build them up. He comes out to lift them up. I, I, I believe that this shows us a, a, a trueness and a graciousness of God. Because surely the people in Philadelphia, they weren't perfect. They still fell short. No one is perfect. Uh, but in God's grace, He sees those who seek, to, who, who seek to desire and honor Him. And there is favor there. There is um, comfort there. There is grace. But to those who have rejected Him or those who have embraced something false, uh, there can be a much more harsh form of love seeking to draw them back. Anyway, that was just getting off track a little bit. Okay, he says that he set a door before them. I know your works. You have, um, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So remember that door, that's the gospel. That door is the entrance into the kingdom of God. That door is how you have a relationship with God. You walk through the door of the gospel. You trust in Jesus Christ. That is the door that is open that no one can shut. Jesus opened that door when he died on the cross and when he rose from the grave. Jesus opened that door and it will stay open until... Jesus comes back until uh, creation is done, until eternity is wrapped, or not eternity, but until uh, the time is complete, uh, salvation is open and available for all who would call on the name of the Lord. Now, he's writing this to encourage them because, well, I don't want to jump ahead too far. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but in verse 9 he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews... And are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So you've got these, these, these Jews who are coming up against them, and they're saying, look, because you're not trusting in Judaism, because you're not trusting in the law, because you're not trusting in the sacrificial system, God doesn't love you. Because you're not following the path of Judaism, God does not want you. That is not how you get to God, or that is the only way to get to God, is following the path of Judaism. And if you don't do that, then God does not love you. And so they're, they're kind of being inundated with this message. Not only do they live in this, in this culture that is uh, unabashedly and unashamedly uh, pagan, but they've got the only other quasi-positive religious people, the Jews, which Christianity flows out of, they've got these people who are telling them, look, God does not love you because you're trusting in Jesus rather than trusting in the law. They've got it backwards. And so Jesus writes this letter. He says, look, this door that has been opened, or that has been opened, no one can shut. Understand, the gospel is the only way to Jesus. I have opened it. Regardless of what anyone else will say, it is open. And this is how you get to the fathers through the Son. So he encourages them with that, the open door. Then he says that I know that you are, <clears throat> says, um, I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is not a large church. This is not a, a big, huge church in this city. The idea of little power there means that. One is probably a smaller church, but also because of the persecution coming their way, 
These are not people who are in government. These are not people who have uh, cultural authority. These are not people who are wealthy or rich. They're kind of the um, lower on the social and economic totem pole. They're not a big church. And he says, look, I understand that you're little in power. You're small. You don't have much, much impact and influence when it comes to culture and society. But understand, you have stood firm. You have stayed close to my word. You have not rejected me. You have not denied my name. And he encourage them and says, I understand that this world is hard on you. I understand this world can beat you down. But the fact that you have stood firm and have not denied my name, there's the praise for them. There's the encouragement. This is what you have done well. Then he says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them bow at your feet or I'll make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, just as a reminder, uh, because this happened at the church of the letter of Smyrna, uh, Jesus called uh, the Jews there. Um, the same thing, the synagogue of Satan, that they, were, uh, they claimed to be real Jews, but they were not. Uh, these were those who were Jewish in nationality and, and worship. Uh, but Jesus says that the true Jews are those who recognize Him as the Messiah. In John chapter 8, He says this, They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. You are of your father the devil. And you will do to, um, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. And in Romans chapter 2, Paul said this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is is not from man, but from God. So there's once again, we see this reminder that um, the focus here is not on Judaism or Jews when it comes to, hey, I'm from the line of Abraham, or, or hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish in nationality, and hey, I'm Jewish in the fact that I keep the, uh, the law, and I keep the Sabbath, and I keep the high holy days, and I keep all the, uh, the harvest days and the holy days. Um, this is not, not what makes a Jew from God's perspective now. It is those who trust and follow in Jesus. Paul talks about how... Uh, Christians are grafted into that that vine, those promises uh, made to Abraham, those those covenants made to the Jews throughout history. Um, Galatians, that's Paul's whole message, is the, uh, the how we have been, um, Christ fulfilled all of those covenants. And so we are part of that through Christ. And so he encourages them and says, look, they're going to know that I love you. They're going to be reminded that I love you. That it's not Jews nationally that God loves. It's those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. That's what brings about that relationship. That's what brings about adoption. That's what brings us into God's family. That door that Jesus has opened that no one can shut. And he goes on. He says, verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will come, or I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world and try to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. All right. 
So here, because in verse 11, he talks about uh, he is coming soon. Um, This gives us the understanding that he is talking about his second coming, uh, that Jesus is going to come back. Once again, it's a reminder to this church, understand that I understand there's a tribulation going on, but I will come back. Jesus is coming back. That's an essential faith, uh, essential truth to our faith that Jesus will return. There is a second coming. But here we get kind of one of the first kind of things that we've got to kind of think through and make a decision about. Now, I told y'all um, that when we came to these spots, that I would try to present um, the two major views when it comes to uh, how the, 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 the tribulation works uh, or when the tribulation will happen. Um, Because I've been honest, I have a differing view than probably a lot of you, and that's fine. This is not an essential. Uh, So in verse 10, he says, Because of your endurance, or because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So with that verse, there are two differing views. Those who believe in a, in a tribulation that happens before the rapture, that before the, the seven-year tribulation, um, before the, the, the second return of Christ, uh, the second advent, the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming, there are those who believe, there's a, a school of thought, a theological thought that says Christians will be taken out of the world or raptured uh, before that seven-year tribulation. So those who hold to that, this is one of those verses that, that they use in support of that. Um, my favorite uh, Bible teacher uh, is John MacArthur. And John MacArthur holds to this. He says this is a verse uh, referring to where he says, "How will?" Um, let me read it correctly. He says uh, that I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world. That idea that he says is that I will keep you from the hour of trials that we're going to, to take you out of it. Uh, we're going to take you out. There's that seven-year tribulation where there is um, the one world ruler, uh, where things are great for three and a half years. Things get really bad. Uh, you've got those who come to faith. There's a lot of martyrdom. There's a lot of those who die. But the church in existence at the beginning of that is taken out as, it, as that seven years starts. So that's one of the, the kind of the foundational verses for that. Um, really, to, to make a decision on this, you've got to decide what the word from means or where you're going to stand on the word from. Because in verse 10, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. So there are those who believe that that word from refers to that I'm going to pluck you out. I'm going to pull you out. I'm going to uh, pull you off the earth. And that's how I'm going to keep you from. Then there are those who will say, I will keep you from the hour of trial, is God's promise of protection, uh, both spiritual and, um, there it is, uh, both spiritual and uh, to an extent physical. Now we know that there's going to be martyrdom, there's going to be believers who die, uh, but this is a promises of God's protection. Now, because that's the stance that I take, I'm going to show you why I believe that. One, 
Christ has just been uh, talking about how this church has been going through persecution. They've, they've felt this persecution from what Jesus calls the synagogue of Satan. They have persevered. And Jesus talks about how this door that He has opened, no one can shut, and that He is going to be faithful to them. He's about to give them this encouragement of the conquerors as those who have relationship with Him, those who are a part of His kingdom, those who are part of His city, given a new name. There's this um, promise that God has been... That Jesus has been faithful to them as they went through this tribulation, as they went through this persecution. Now he's saying there's going to be a widespread persecution. He's referring to the end times. And so um, contextually, you can really take this to say, okay, you've been faithful. I've been with you. Now when it gets really bad, I'm going to be with you even then as well. Also, in John chapter 17, as Jesus prays his high priestly prayer, he prays this. I've given them your world, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In this prayer, as Jesus prays for his disciples then and for all believers post uh, his, his death, burial, and resurrection, that includes us, there's the promise or there's the prayer there that God would protect us, that God would keep us, that God would hold us, even if suffering is involved in that, uh, that God is the one that holds us in his hand, not that he takes us out of that. There's been a promise all throughout the New Testament that believers will suffer and there will be persecution. Um, and so... Uh, Jesus' prayer was not that we would be taken out of the world, but God would give us the strength to endure it. It also, I believe, mirrors the exodus of the story of the exodus in the book of Exodus. Uh, As you've got those plagues that that hit um, um, Egypt, as you read through those plagues, as you read through the, uh, the cows that die, it says that um, all of Egypt died, their, their, their cattle died, but, uh, but not the Jews, not in the land of Goshen. When it talks about the, the flies and the locusts, it says it attacked all of, all of Egypt, but not in the land of the Israelites. They were spared all of these plagues, though they lived right there with the Egyptians, though they were right there with them. When all of the negative hit, when all of the plagues hit, God spared them and God protected protected them. Now, there was still persecution that came. They still had to work harder. They were still beaten. They were still treated as slaves. It doesn't mean that life was perfect, but it means when the bad stuff came, especially everything that we're going to read about in Revelation, they were supernaturally protected by God. And this culminated in the death of the firstborn. When they put the blood on the doorpost, they are protected by the blood of the goat, which is a picture of being us protected by the blood of Jesus. So that's the the, the stance that I take, and that's why I take it. But regardless, it's a promise that whether it's, it's, it's taking you out or leaving you in and protecting you, it's a promise that wherever you want to go with that, the end result is the same, that God is promising or Jesus is promising this church that when trials and tribulation come, one way or another, I'm going to be there with you. One way or another, I'm going to be protecting you. One way or another, whether it's taking you out or whether it's protecting you in the midst of it, I will be with you and I'm not leaving you. And then there's the promise to those who conquer. Look at verse um, 12. It says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. 
Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Here's the promise of uh, uh, being a part of God's kingdom, being uh, embraced into God's kingdom. Uh, there's that new name. You're a pillar in God's kingdom. Uh, this means we are with Him. And that's the promise of endurance, is that we are with Him. We are part of His kingdom. We are citizens in His kingdom. And we are His. So this is a letter, once again, that what God has opened in the gospel, no one can close. And Jesus is the only way to salvation. No matter what our world says, no matter what temptation or persecution we deal with, if we stand firm, we have the greatest promise. And that is the promise that Jesus will always be with us and we will be with Him for eternity.